abracadabra, I sit on his knee. Presto, change and now he is me. Hocus pocus, we take her to bed. Magic is free. We're dead. Josephine Levine presents Magic, a terrifying love story. Starring Anthony Hopkins, Anne Margaret, and Burgess Meredith. Rated R. Fasten your seatbelts, everybody. It's going to be a bumpy night. Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed our American Horror Story jaunt, but now it's time to get back to the real unsolved cases that haunt our world. For season three, we're going to try something a little different. We'll still be covering a case per episode, but rather than doing 10 unrelated cases this season, we'll be following a purported and still at large serial killer. This killer has been claiming victims all over the United States for almost 50 years, and despite modern advances in DNA testing, they have yet to be caught. While they have been known to kill their victims in a variety of fashions, at least one person left at the crime scene has been murdered in a very specific way. This season, we'll be covering the Swiss Army Slasher. Also ran names, the Leatherman Butcher, the Victorinox Eviscerator, the Lagiole Exterminator, <laughs> the Multi-Tool Mutilator, the Diminutive Destroyer, the Petite Poker. Oh, welcome back. <laughs> I'm Karina. I'm Emily. And I'm Katie. And, and this, this is, is The, the Nameless, Nameless Dead. Dead. In 1978, a new performer hit the talk show circuit. While Corky Withers, a conservatively dressed card magician in his mid-twenties, was nothing special, his assistant made their act shine. Okay, sorry. I was going to make fun of his name, but then I saw he's a clown. So, I mean, I guess, touche. <laughs> he's a magician. Oh, same thing. I mean, better Corky Withers than Cocky Withers. Mm. Fats, a two-foot-tall, foul-mouthed ventriloquist dummy, was beloved by all and quickly got himself and Corky signed with Willie Mart's Talents Agency with representation by the infamous Ben Green. <laughs> oh, okay. You said infamous Ben, and until you said Green, I flashed back to being trapped in our top fans above ground pool. Hard same. I'm, like, triggered by that name. <laughs> If you've never heard Ben Green's name, you've certainly heard of some of his clients. Among the greats were Steve Martin, Cary Grant, Cher, Gene Kelly, and Madonna. Name dropper. Yeah. Affectionately called the postman because he always delivered. Green himself had an amazing career, beginning in 1938 and lasting through two world wars. Oscar Levant said of Green, everybody who matters has two agents, his own and Ben Green. Ben planned for Corky to follow the same trajectory that Steve Martin had just a few years prior. From the Stardust, a small club where Corky had first bombed, to the talk show circuit in Vegas, Ben had just booked an NBC pilot for the man and his doll when things began to get complicated. <laughs> Poor Steve Martin's probably like, leave me out of this. <laughs> yeah, I really want to know more about this show. I don't know much about the pitch for the show, but I can tell you about his act at the Stardust. Good evening. He would start on stage as a card magician who is just pulling off each trick. Ordinary deck of cards. And as things start to go worse and worse, and he starts to, like, sweat. All right. Uh, I'm sorry. I did that uh, wrong. Uh, you're not supposed to cover the aces in this trick. Um, sorry. You can hear a heckler from the back of the house. Goddamn drunks. 
He's not left just the top card. He's going to grab five. So if you think you can do better, you're welcome to try. Just give me a hand getting up there, Smuckle, and step aside. Okay. And Corky eventually gets frustrated with this dude and invites him on stage. And lo and behold, it's Fats. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So Fats pretty much just rails on him for the rest of the act, thereby distracting the audience so Corky can pull off all of his card tricks flawlessly. Okay, this is impressive, though. He's both manipulating a puppet and doing card tricks. Yep, the whole time. And now I'm picturing like an NBC sitcom with like a laugh track. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's absolutely what it would have been. Right. (laughs) Purportedly, it all started with a medical examination. The standard issue pilot in the 70s required a physical for all of its performers, especially ones about to star in their own shows. According to Ben's secretary, Sadie Randolph, Corky did not take kindly to this prospect. He refused to do the pilot if a medical examination was required. Okay, but a mandatory physical for an acting job is definitely suspicious, right? Like the 70s, once again, need to get back here and answer some questions. I mean, does NBC just think HIPAA regulations are not a thing, right? I mean, you have to have a physical to play high school sports. Yes. It's got to be an insurance thing, right? Well, is he doing a lot of physical stunt comedy? I mean, it's... Probably the same stuff he's been doing on the show circuit. Right. Is it like, can you lift 40 pounds? Can you lift (laughs) a puppet? Are you capable of standing for three hours? (laughs) He said it was the principle of the matter. The issue was so serious that Ben called three of Willie Mart's talent agency's lawyers to meet with NBC to see if there was a way to keep the pilot and forego the examination. What is NBC's deal? I mean, is this this like a mafia thing? Right, give it up. They lost that battle. Oof. And in his fury, Corky Withers packed his bags, checked out of the Hotel St. Moritz, and promptly disappeared. It's a diva move. It was only a few short days before Ben Green disappeared mm-hmm. as well. Oh my. Ben's theory was that the threat of fame was simply too much for Corky. Oh, or how about the fact that there's still unwarranted stigma around medical conditions and it's none of the business of his employer? I mean, yeah, I'm kind of starting to doubt here Ben's golden reputation as an amazing agent if he really believed that. Wait, so is Corky like a, a recognized celebrity or is this his break into fame so this would be his break into like big fame he had run the talk show circuit for more than a year at this point back then there were like what four channels that everybody watched so everybody watched johnny carson shows like that and he'd been on all of them Mm. so he didn't have his own show he's he definitely wasn't a household name but he was recognized all the time Gotcha. I'm really just worried about him. What was so jarring about getting a physical that he upended his whole career over it? Like, does he have an unresolved phobia of doctors? And was worried about that too. And that's why his whole explanation was like, well, it couldn't have just been the medical examination, right? It must have been more than that. It must have been him freaking out by the prospect of all of this success. Mm. Or maybe he just didn't want to get found out for like heavy drug use or something. That's possible. But I mean, Cocaine. (laughs) 70s. Everybody was on it, right? Yep. Whatever the case, he certainly got cold feet. He hopped a cab and headed straight for his hometown and long lost love. (laughs) Now it's a love story? 
It's always a love story when it comes to murder. Crime of passion. You see, Corky was originally from a little town just outside of the Catskills called Liberty, New York. Okay, no, I'm back on the name. The fact that we haven't addressed that Corky is a stage name means that this is his real name? Uh, yeah, short for Corknelius. <laughs> I hate you guys. <laughs> Though he paid his cab driver $100 on top of a pretty hefty fare to keep quiet, Ben easily found the cabbie a few days later and eventually... So did the police. Sounds like that cabbie got three paydays out of one fare. Again, I'm just going to put this out there. Mafia connections. <laughs> we now know that Corky took the cab on a trip down memory lane. First, visiting what the driver presumed to be his dilapidated childhood oh, home. Bleak. Followed by his father's grave. Bleak. By this point, the evening had set in, along with the winter rain. Oh, bleak. And Corky stared out at his family's plot in the cold, empty cemetery as uh. the icy rain poured down his skin. Corky. <laughs> Their last stop on this meandering tour was a cabin-filled campground set alongside a small, sparkling lake. Peggy Ann Snow, a high school crush of Corky's, had inherited the campground from her parents. And at the time Corky checked in, was running the campground while her husband was out of town on business. Damn, Corky. <laughs> How convenient for Corky. Yeah, did, did he know that she would be alone this weekend? I think it was just sheer luck. Hmm. Corky decided that this would be the perfect location to hide from the pressures of showbiz and reconnect with his high school crush. <laughs> Peggy's like, what? <laughs> You're an unemployed clown, and I'm married? Yeah, would it be so hard for Corky to ask himself if Peggy might want this attention from him? Hmm, apparently it would. Yeah, Peggy has bad taste in men. Oh, Peggy. <sighs> Meanwhile, Ben, back in New York City, noticed Corky's absence. Corky had been Ben's client for two years, and in addition to being Corky's friend... Ben had a lot of money riding on this young man and his doll. So we've already established that Ben has a super lucrative career and represents all the famous and important people. Surely he could wait out this one client's temper tantrum? Yeah, well, it was so urgent. Like, geez, we'll take, take the weekend and cool off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll reconnect on Monday. As I said earlier, it didn't take long for Ben to find Corky's cabbie and map out exactly where the young man had run off to. Two days after Corky's abrupt departure from the Hotel St. Moritz. I feel like it's really weird to go from starring in an NBC sitcom to, well, my career's over. Let me go see what's up with my unrequited love. Confronting one's fear of doctors will do strange things to you. Very sus. Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure that anybody thought his career was over at this point. Ben clearly didn't because he chased him down. Maybe Corky thought that he was going to win the fight about the doctors or... Mm, it's a power move. Yeah, maybe he thought he just needed to take a weekend breather and go right back to everything being fine. And then Ben kind. had to overreact. <laughs> Jeez. Way overreact. This crime is all Ben's fault. Ah, uh, yeah. Always. Two days after Corky's abrupt departure from the Hotel St. Moritz, which, by the way, is now the Ritz-Carlton New York Central Park. Swank. Ben's Rolls Royce showed up at the Liberty Lake campground, suspiciously, without Ben. So the car drives itself now. Got it. The reason we know this is because Duke, Peggy's husband, came back from his business trip, interrupting Corky's attempts to romance his wife. Dun, dun, dun. Duke and Peggy had grown up together in Liberty and had gotten hit shortly after graduating high school together. As Peggy nursed her ailing parents, Duke had a rising and then falling real estate career. Is this the plot of the NBC sitcom? 
1978, he had turned professional woodsman, taking groups of people out on hunting and fishing expeditions. Hence the work trip he had just returned from. Okay, not gonna lie, Duke sounds hot. Duke and Peggy's relationship was rocky, according to Peggy. They frequently split up, and when he was drinking, he could be downright controlling and abusive. Oh, Duke, I was rooting for you. According to Peggy, Duke was in a rage about she and Corky being alone on the campsite together for multiple days. Okay, wait, we kind of skipped the reunion, so I take it Corky was successful? Wow, chicka puppet, wow, wow. (laughs) The reunion was from Corky's perspective two days of taking walks around the lake with the woman he's been in love with since high school, right? So A-plus on Corky's side. And for Peggy, it was a TV star from the big city wanting Mm. to come and take her away from her boring life and all her financial woes. Okay. All right. So, like, win-win on surface level. Until the husband comes home. After inviting Corky up to the house for breakfast... To which he purportedly attended with his puppet fats, oddly enough. This is Corky's signature seduction technique. Honestly, what? Imagine inviting somebody to breakfast. <laughs> they bring a ventriloquist doll. Like, do you make a place setting for them? Do they pretend to eat? Or are you like, oh, no, no, no. Fats had a big dinner. Nothing for him. <laughs> Duke exited the house and spotted the rolls. Corky was quick to point out that it belonged to Ben. He claimed that Ben had visited him due to career problems. I haven't been behaving all that normal. Does he ever? Corky returned to the house and proceeded to call Willie Mart's talent agency from Duke and Peg's house phone. Peg listened to him carry on a conversation with Sadie, Ben's secretary, in which he learned that Ben wasn't in the office. Duke was immediately suspicious of this conversation, and he had every reason to be. When later questioned by police, Sadie claimed the call never happened. Additionally, no phone records exist for either end of the call. Mm. Later, Corky explained that Ben had tracked him down to the campgrounds and came for a visit. His car got stuck in the mud as he was leaving, and then he couldn't get it out. He took a cab back to New York City, abandoning his car. See, like, red flags. Why wouldn't he just ask Duke and Peggy to help him get unstuck? I'm sure it happens all the time at this campground. <laughs> Who just abandons a Rolls Royce? Right. I mean, maybe he's got just like 10 of them. He's like, disposable. Yeah, well, we'll get rid of number four today. So funny thing about Ben, he regularly abandoned his car. <laughs> <laughs> no. He regularly smoked cigars that shipped in this these like glass test tube-like containers And so when he was about to smoke a cigar, he'd remove it from the tube and then throw the tube over his shoulder, just leaving it shattered on the ground wherever it fell. Weird flex. How bougie. Yeah, like what? A shattered cigar tube was found in the cabin that Corky was renting. So we know that Ben and Corky interacted in that cabin for at least long enough for Ben to have opened a cigar. He even does it inside? Yeah. Like everywhere. I mean, who does he expect is going to come clean up after Right. So it's like day three of living there. It's just like walking around on broken glass. (laughs) Sure, Ben. We may never know exactly what happened that afternoon. Peg, our star witness, went to town to go grocery shopping, leaving Duke and Corky alone on the property. So are there just no other guests at this campground? Oh, no. It's got a uh, Bates Motel problem, I'd say. Uh Corky's presence had stirred up a good deal of controversy in Duke and Peggy's marriage, even after their awkward breakfast together. Though Duke was unaware, Corky had asked Peg to leave her husband for him. 
Her trip off the property was to make up her mind. Uh, what about option three? Neither of these men. Turns out she was running away with that. Oh, ventriloquist doll as a lover. Corky later told Peg that Duke confronted him and accused him of sleeping with her. Uh, this would mirror the conversation that Duke had had with Peg earlier that afternoon in which he accused her of the same thing. When Corky didn't confirm his accusation, Duke left in a rage to go hunting. It's unclear if Corky knew this was a lie when he told Peg or not, but police believe he did. Peg decided to wait until Duke returned home to break the news of her leaving him. As dust dragged into night with no sign of Duke, Corky became more and more insistent that they leave. The two soon began to fight and Peg returned to her home. Despite a failed attempt at an apology from Corky, it took Peg over an hour before she decided that she would in fact leave with Corky that night. But why? I still don't see the allure of Corky here. I mean, maybe he's super hot or like, oh, his magic fingers? And he's a ventriloquist, so maybe mad tongue skills? You, you guys go. are the worst. Priorities. She went down to his rented cabin and walked into a scene that still haunts her to this day. Inside the cabin, Corky lay, holding his puppet, dead from a stab wound to his stomach. He had crawled across the floor after he had been fatally stabbed to grab his doll, and the two of them died in a tragic embrace. This is surprisingly poignant. Duke never did return home. And with the mis- calling it, Duke was the murderer. <laughs> and with the mysterious Rolls Royce still on the property, police decided to drag the small lake for clues. They ended up finding both Duke and Ben's bodies oh, n- never mind. wrapped together in canvas and intentionally sunk to the bottom of that lake. Looks like the postman's made his final delivery. Katie, someone's dead. Too soon. Three someone's are dead. That's what you get for having the postman. While Ben appeared to have been beaten and eventually succumbed to drowning, Duke had been stabbed three times and then had his throat slit by the same small knife that had killed Corky. Okay, I have questions about the logistics of being stabbed to death with a small knife. How small are we talking? If it is indeed Swiss Army knife, then it's like three inches tops. I mean, no way someone dies from that. Like, you can live for days with a gut wound. Well, I don't have the measurements on this tiny knife, per se. It did have a large enough blade that one stab in the gut killed Corky. Maybe it was poison. Maybe no. it was Conjecture. <laughs> Maybe there's no evidence of that. <laughs> Disregard. Police more or less considered this an open and shut case. In their theory, Corky experienced a mental break that caused him to flee New York City. When Ben confronted him about coming back to work, he beat him to death with Fats, his puppet. What is this puppet made of? Can we can we also talk about how horrifying it would be to be beaten to death by a puppet? Like, wow, what a way to go. Uh, yeah, does the puppet show any signs of being used as an implement of bludgeoning? So Fats was made of wood, and no, he actually didn't show any signs of damage. Apparently the marks on Ben's head which is where he was mostly beaten to death, could have been made with something like the same approximate size of fats. So take what you want from that. I don't want to take anything from that. (laughs) Police had a very specific theory about all of this. When Duke threatened his budding relationship with Peggy, 
He stabbed him to death. Then when it seemed like Peg was going to leave him, he committed suicide with that same knife. I'm surprised Corky could overpower Duke. I mean, I guess, do we know what Corky looked like? I'm, I'm imagining Duke is being pretty strong since he's a woodsman. Yeah, so I've watched some of his old interviews and he is not a big guy. Okay. <laughs> That's all I got for okay. you. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know how he overpowered a woodsman. You got me there. The element of surprise, perhaps. The knife was found at the scene of the crime with his blood and fingerprints on it. Emily, I think Peg did choose option three, neither men, and then she murdered them both so she could be free at last. Yes. Well, what yep. about Ben? Why murder him? Mm, he was a witness. Yep, yep. Before either of those murders happened, he uh, overheard her conspiring with herself. Mm-hmm. Maybe Ben uh, just got in a fist fight with Fats. Maybe and- she was conspiring with Fats. Ooh. Maybe, maybe she was conspiring with Ben, and then Ben turned off. No, sorry. Oh, and it's a double cross. You guys are worse than the police. Ben in this case. promised Peggy she would have an NBC sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> All of this seemed like the most straightforward answer to the evidence that police discovered. And frankly, it's easier to blame the dead than hunt for the living. It was only years later, when a string of other murders with tiny knives began to occur, that new theories in this case began to arise. Maybe if the police hadn't taken the easy route out here, those other murders wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. The internet widely believes that this is the first case of the Swiss Army Slasher. And there are a couple of details about this case that come up again and again in similar cases in the future. Multiple victims in this case were murdered with a small knife near the lower half of their bodies. So the Swiss Army slasher is short? A child? A puppet come to life? This is very specific, considering a tiny knife might be more effective at points higher on the body, like, I don't know, slashing the throat. I mean, Mm. not that I'm a murdery creep or anything, I promise. Makes sense. Yeah, that's what we're worried about in this true crime show. So yeah, I've read a lot of theories about this specific weird detail that keeps coming up over and over again. All of those have been covered, except like obviously not the puppet, because that's ridiculous. (laughs) So ridiculous. The killer also might have been sitting down to disarm their victims. I've also heard like maybe they are differently abled and in a wheelchair, but I think in this case, with all of the mud around the cabins and, you know, cabins in the middle of nowhere in 1970s, probably not being like ADA accessible. Mm Probably not the case in this one. Mm. This form of killing the victims is the most consistent evidence that a single person is committing these crimes. Duke actually did have his throat slit Emily as well, but the three stab wounds in his abdomen probably would have killed him regardless. Uh. There was one victim in this case killed by other means. The Swiss Army slasher tends to always have other victims that aren't stabbed to death. So is the Swiss Army Slasher just really good at picking crime scenes that have other drama to kind of cover the tracks? Or maybe part of their method is also to include a non-stabby element. Spice it up. Some people have theorized that the serial killer has a partner in crime. Police have found scant evidence of one killer at these crime scenes, let alone two. So, I don't know. And also, and this is one of the weird ones, there is the presence of a doll. I've never figured this out, but in every single one of these cases, a doll is somehow involved. Creepy. Fats was with Corky for years leading up to the incident, so it's definitely not a matter of someone like planting the doll at the scene after the fact or introducing it as some sort of victim targeting system, which, you know, we'll see in future cases. 
For sure, it's a strange calling card for a serial killer, and actually one of the reasons that I chose the Swiss Army slasher for this season. Yeah, it's interestingly specific and out of the ordinary, so you would think it would draw unnecessary attention, but I guess that's the point of a calling card. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some have theorized that these victims may be targeted with an idea that society will take the death of someone who plays with dolls less seriously, but... Corky Withers was a pretty public figure, as we said before, and he was regularly recognized in the street. Like, even the cab driver who brought him to Liberty knew who he was. It's possible this killer saw him on TV and targeted him, but how he managed to find him in Liberty is a bit of a mystery. I mean, it it is his hometown. It's not a huge stretch. Yeah, and Ben was able to find him pretty quickly, so... Corky never shut up about Peg. Literally, everyone's like, God, we know. It's Peg. (laughs) (laughs) Even the cabbie was like, can you just shut up about this girl? You haven't seen her since high school. Maybe you won't like her as much anymore. We all know she's married. (laughs) Right? All of the purported Swiss Army slasher cases leave a lot to conjecture. If all of these cases were the work of the same serial killer, he's been active for about 40 years. If he's been active for 40 years, A, how early did he get started? Right. And B... 1978, literally what I mean, we're how, talking about. I mean, I, hang on. I mean, how old was he? Right, God, right. Uh, was this like a teenage slasher? We're looking at at the latest early 20s. Have to be to still be going strong in their like 60s, or early 70s. Yeah. From this case, it would be almost 10 years before he struck again. Tune in next time to hear the second episode of the Swiss Army slasher, Dolls. And until then, don't be nameless. Don't be dead. This episode was written and edited by Karina McGeehan, hosted by Emily Shirley, Katie Jeffries, and Karina McGeehan. Our producer is Derek Adams, and sound and music design was done by Ian Ennis with mixing by Alan Rowell. Sweet mystery of life at last I found you. I think Steve Martin is the slasher. (gasps) Didn't want to have this up-and-comer usurping him. Taking out the competition. Mm -hmm. No one would ever suspect him. No. It seems like a thing Stephen Martin would do with the whole tiny knife thing. <laughs> it is funny. <laughs> it would be funny. Mm-hmm.